All right. Good morning, church. As you guys are sitting back down, uh, I have three scripture readings for us this morning, but first, uh, let's pray. You guys can pray with me. Lord, open our hearts and minds to the power of your Holy Spirit, that me, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. Our first reading is from Psalm 118, verses 1 through 2, and 14 through 24. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live, and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. From Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 43. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know that what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testified about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 28, (coughs) verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. 
So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them, greetings to them. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. The word of the Lord. Um, when I was 22 years old, this is going to bother me, forgive me. When I was 22 years old, I took a part time job as an intern with a church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I started at the same time a graduate degree in theology in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was ready, you know, as a young buck, eyes wide open, I was ready to grab the world by the horns. I wanted to make a contribution. I was full of energy, which led me to having a hard time saying no, because there are so many good things that you could do. And so before I knew it, this part-time ministry gig as an intern turned into the equivalent of a full-time job on top of this full-time coursework in Memphis that I was driving to a couple of days a week. But I was determined. I was going to handle it. I was going to get it done. And so I just slept less. Sometimes I didn't sleep at all. And I started drinking lots of coffee and taking energy supplements. And I mean, I really mean energy supplements. That's what I'm talking about. Um, One night, I was staying up um, all night writing a paper for this class called Theological Hermeneutics. That's a mouthful. And I, I won't forget that night. I think I combined too much coffee with too many energy supplements um, because I started to shake and like almost convulsing like I could not control it I tried to go to sleep I could not go to sleep my heart was pounding and so I got up and I took a shower and I went to work it was early in the morning you know I mean you got to go to work right yeah that's things to do and I sit down in front of my boss and he looks at me and he says Charles you look Terrible. What is wrong? Uh, your face, it just looks like it's white as a ghost. And I could feel the skin on my face just pulling back. I mean, this is way before Botox. Pulling back. And I'm like, I, I agree. Something's not right. So he's like, I'm going to drive you home. So he drove me home. I went and sat on the couch. And as I was sitting on the couch, Julie was getting ready uh, for school that day, um, thank God, she was home because my my heart started to race and pound and then to ache really badly. And I, I called Julie into the room and try in a very calm voice to not freak her out, but to say, Julie, could you please dial 911 and call to have somebody come because I think I'm having a heart attack. And she calls 911, the paramedics come, and they're asking me, you know, what, what, what's happened? What have you done? You know, well, there, here, there's these energy supplements and coffee, and the guy looks at me and he's like, you're an idiot! <laughs> what were you thinking, man? No wonder you feel terrible! 
uh, that that moment um, that that was a major uh, kind of moment in my young adulthood where I came to grips with my mortality, um, with the fact that um, I could die. Um, I, for whatever reason, it hadn't really crossed my mind. I kind of thought that I was invincible um, and that, that nothing could uh, could bring me down. But but I reached the limits of my physical body, working too hard at that. I realized I had limits, and it terrified me. In fact, for about a year after that event, I had panic attacks in public because I was terrified that I was going to have a heart attack and die in front of a bunch of strangers. Like this, this fear of death and finitude just haunted me. Maybe uh, you have your own less crazy moments of coming into contact with your own mortality and, and human fragility. Uh, Richard Beck, in his book, The Slavery of Death, says that we live in a culture of death avoidance. Uh, because we're terrified of death, we shield ourselves from even thinking about it, right? So instead of like in the, the good old days where family members die at home, they, they often die in a hospital, right? They're where sick people go and they're, they're away from us. Instead of having a parlor in our homes, we now have living rooms because the parlor belongs in the funeral home. Um, that's We don't keep the dead in our homes anymore when they die. We send them to the funeral home. And um, instead of having a grave in our backyard or on our property, it goes to a cemetery somewhere that is well hidden, very well obscured. They're, they're not prominent staples in our community anymore the way that they used to be. And it creates this, uh, this sense of accidentalness about death, that, that, it's, that, it's, that it's accidental, that it is... Um, it's abnormal. It creates this illusion of immortality for us because we don't surround ourselves with death. We're supposed to live forever. Beck says that this culture of death avoidance is driven by below the surface this neurotic anxiety that we are, we are terrified of our mortality. It's what the Hebrews writer called slavery to the fear of of death, And he says that is the power of the devil. That slavery to the fear of death is the power of the devil. This neurotic anxiety leads us, in its worst forms, to demonize people. To demonize people who are different than us. Um, who, who might be a threat to our way of life. To our well-being. To our life. And in its most extreme form, it leads to violence against those people. And even death. Sometimes it means that we live at a very superficial level where everything is fine because we don't want to admit below the surface there might be signs of death or trouble or problems in our lives. It's, it's a sense of pretense. Death is all around us, even if we would like to avoid it or not think about it. We see death right, right now at work in places like Syria and al-Assad and the, the rebel civil war conflict. We see death at work in Egypt this past week where an IS bomb went off in a Coptic church and 44 Christians lost their lives. We see it at work in the mother of all bombs that was just dropped, killing 94 people in Afghanistan. And it's not just out there, right? Like 
we, we, we have it around us, too. Many of us have lost people that we love very dearly. Like, death is up close and personal for us. So what do we do? How do we deal with death? Surely there's a better way to relate to it than being captivated by neurotic anxiety about it, wanting to avoid it, being scared to death of it, literally and figuratively, of demonizing other people and enacting violence. What do we do with this? Death is everywhere. They had seen death before. They buried others. But this one, this one really hurts. They left everything to follow him. Their homes, their jobs, their families. They left it all. And they followed him as he just wandered all over Palestine. He was incredible. He had this amazing charisma. But it wasn't just by that he was slick. You could see it in his eyes, the genuine love that he had for others. And he did amazing things. When he spoke about the scriptures, it was unlike anything you had ever heard. When he spoke about the religious leaders, well, they hadn't heard the Pharisees called out like that before either. The buzz building around him was incredible. He wasn't out there saying it publicly, but they were all convinced he was the Messiah. The anointed one, the one chosen by God to rescue his people from captivity. And then they came to Jerusalem and it looked like this was going to be it. He rode into the town on a donkey and people were shouting, Hosanna! He cleaned out the temple court. He got challenged by the religious authorities and he fired back and silenced them. And then Passover happened. Now, Passover should have been a great one. And the conversation at the meal got kind of weird and uncomfortable. Someone would betray him. Peter would deny that he even knew him. They were all going to desert him. And then it happened. Judas shows up with guards. And then there's chaos. And then Jesus is in custody. And then he's being crucified. And now, now he's dead. How could this be? Somehow, they got through the next day, the Sabbath. And then on Sunday morning, they came to the tomb, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, still reeling from what had happened, still in shock, grief-stricken. They got up and they came to the tomb to keep vigil. Now, they had heard that guards were going to be posted. They were expecting that. But what they saw was very unexpected. The big stone that should have been blocking the tomb had been pushed to the side. And the guards were there, but they were like this, just frozen, scared, staring at something. And that something they were staring at was a man, dressed in all white, himself radiating white. And he turns to the women and he says, don't be afraid. And they're like, Okay. <laughs> it's like, I know, I know. You're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen and he's on his way to Galilee. Go tell his disciples. 
okay. <laughs> so, so they go, and they're on their way, and then they see him. It's Jesus. And they drop to their knees, and they kiss his feet, and they worship him. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee. Okay. Okay. So somehow they find the disciples, and somehow they convince them to go to Galilee. Because, you know, it's 70 miles from Jerusalem to Galilee. And so they all get there, and they wind up on a mountain, and there he is. It's Jesus. It's really him. And he says, all authority has been given to me. And they're like, yes, this is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. He's using that Messiah language, that king language. He's just been put in charge of everything. And and it's, it's go time. Let's do this, right? He says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. What? Jesus, he did it again. You think he's going one way and then he just goes a completely different direction. What does a king need with disciples? Kings don't need that. They need generals. They need advisors. They need armies. And I really want to say a lot more about this, but before we go further with this story, I feel like I really need to stop and address the elephant in the room with this one. So this story happened 2,000 years ago. It's true, if Jesus really has been put in charge of everything, that means that he's been king of everything for 2,000 years. If he's really king of everything, why is the world as bad as it is? I mean, there's so much violence. There's so much suffering. People still get sick. People still die. Why does this still happen? I'm going to try to shed some light on this. So the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Corinth. And in his letter he said, he said lots of things. But right in the middle, he retells what we call the gospel story. The story of Jesus. The story I'm telling right now. And when he gets to this part about how Jesus has just been made king over everything, he says this. He must reign as king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last hostile power to be destroyed is death itself. All this will happen to fulfill the scripture that says, you place everything on earth beneath his feet. And then there's this parenthetical. Although it says... Everything. It's clear that this does not also pertain to God, who created everything and made it subject to him. I don't know why he thought we would think that. (laughs) Alright. Then, when all creation has taken its rightful place beneath God's sovereign reign, the Son will follow, subject to the Father, who exalted him over all created things. Then God will be God over all. Think about that for a moment. Different part in the same letter, he says it this way. After he conquered his enemies, after he has conquered his enemies, 
and shut down every rule and authority vying for power, he will hand over the kingdom to God, the Father that is over all. Okay, it's a standard Christian teaching that Jesus is God, right? You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They're all they're all God together, and I'm I'm not critiquing that teaching, and I'm not challenging that teaching. I but but Paul does make a distinction here between Father and Son, right? He says that God raised Jesus up. And he made him king. And he didn't make him king just to like hang out on the throne and be comfortable. He made him king to do a job. And that job as king is to put everything under his reign, finally even death itself. And once he's done, Paul says he's going to abdicate the throne to God. So, if Jesus is currently king over everything, as, as we often say that he is, what does that mean? It means he's not done yet. Right. So what's he been doing? Back on the mountain, the disciples, they have been waiting for King Jesus to show up. They want to rise up the army of the Lord and they want to go and they want to kick out the bad guys. But that's not what Jesus does. You know, as he said a lot... His kingdom was not of this world. When he says that, he, he, he means lots of different things. But one of the things that he means is that his kingdom doesn't work the same way that earthly kingdoms do. <clears throat> Put it this way. Jesus has come to play the long game. The disciples are looking for the short game. The short game is subjugate your enemies. The long game change their hearts. Jesus wants to change the heart of every person. Now just for a moment, picture all of the people in the world. Rich, poor, powerful, the disenfranchised, the good, the bad, all everybody. And just imagine if everybody in the whole world loved the way that Jesus loved. What a world that would be. That's why he's up there on the mountain and he tells the disciples to go out there and make more disciples. You see, to him, this makes perfect sense. He says, I spent the past three years showing you how I love other people. Now go out and do that and teach more people to love like I do. The kingdom of God isn't going to be a big army. It's not going to be a strong fortress. It's a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. And when you plant it, it grows slowly. And eventually, it becomes the largest plant in the garden. And even the birds can come find shade in it. I've got good news, folks. Jesus is king over everything. Which means there's still work to be done. And he's busy doing it. So don't expect this kingdom to just pop in one day in a big, flashy way. He doesn't do shock and awe. He does mustard seed. 
Make disciples. Small. Slow. Therese Martin was born in France in 1873. And when she was 15 years old, she got special permission to join early because she was really eager to be a part of this Carmelite monastery in Lisieux, Normandy. Lisieux, it's a cool name. On the surface, uh, her time at the monastery was really uneventful and unremarkable. She was just an ordinary, everyday nun who was a part of a a monastery. Um, She didn't really stand out. On Good Friday in 1896, she woke up and had blood in her mouth. And that was the beginning of a year-long struggle with tuberculosis that eventually um, took her life at the very young age of 24. And yet, in 1925, only 28 years after her death, Pope Pius XI announced Teresa's sainthood. And since then, she's become one of the most popular saints in the Catholic tradition. Pope John Paul II even named Therese a doctor of the church. That's like being a saint of the saints. In the same company with theologians like Augustine and Aquinas. But she never did a miracle. She didn't start a monastic community or an order. She wasn't particularly remarkable. In fact, when she died, one of her fellow sisters was really worried that nobody would have anything to say about her at her funeral. What could she have done to have made her a doctor of the church? A saint among saints. It was what people found when they read her spiritual memoir called The Story of a Soul. It was published a year after her death. And in it, she describes what she calls the little way. The little way for Therese is small, seemingly insignificant actions that are sacrifices made in love for other people. Acts of humility, restraint, self-control, Patience. The little way is about bearing with people. Dying to self for Therese was less about doing something heroic and more about the small acts of giving herself up for others. For instance, she noticed in her community, and apparently this doesn't just happen in junior high, it happens in monasteries too, that everybody flocks to the popular sisters, to the ones that are socially well-adjusted and who make you laugh and who, who make you just feel good about yourself. And, and they kind of stay away from the people who she calls the imperfect souls, the people who were annoying or agitating, or socially abrasive to be around. People who just rub you the wrong way. Some people call them EGRs, extra grace required. (laughs) (laughs) Teresa's little way was to go out of her way to spend time with exactly those people, those imperfect souls. In fact, in her memoir she says this, This is the conclusion I draw from this. 
I must seek out in recreation on free days the company of sisters who are least agreeable to me in order to carry out with regard to these wounded souls the office of the Good Samaritan. A word, an amiable smile often suffice to make a sad soul bloom. Therese of Lisieux shows us how to relate to death in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus shows us how to embrace death. The death of Jesus is not just a gift to us. It is a gift. It's also a pattern. We follow Jesus into this death to ourselves, And it's the resurrection of Jesus that gives us the empowerment to do that. It frees us from the slavery of the fear of death so that we can be free to give up ourselves for others. The way of Jesus is a death before death. And because he's overcome death, we are free to give ourselves to others in love. We're free to love the people who are hard to love. And I love it that she shows us how this can happen in the most mundane, unremarkable kinds of ways. We don't have to be heroes of the faith. The little way of Jesus and Therese is a way for all of us as moms with young kids for blue-collar and white-collar workers, for the elderly man, for a small church. William Stringfellow said that the genius of the Christian life is the freedom to give up our life in order to give the world new life. And we can do that because we know that death doesn't have the last word in this world. Jesus does. Life does. Let me tell you, Um, This is the word of the Lord this morning. This is how Jesus is changing the world. Right now. Right now in this world. With Moab bombs and, and Syria strikes. The way that Jesus is changing the world is not through missile strikes, through coercive shows of force and power. The way that Jesus is changing the world is through the little way of self giving love. Within communities of people who are embodying the self-giving love of Christ. This is how Jesus is changing the world. Jesus is, in fact, changing the world in small and sometimes imperceptible ways to us.